Mental health and suicide can be challenging topics to talk about, especially with young people. Unseen is an award-winning short film that has been created specifically for that purpose. The film and accompanying resources were created to help you have a hopeful conversation with someone who is struggling. Unseen has been shown to thousands of young people across the U.S. and Ireland and sparked countless positive conversations leading to openness and vulnerability. Download the film and resources for free at unseenfilm.org. Welcome to the Ultimate Homeschool Radio Show. Here you will find a variety of podcasts from authors, bloggers, and speakers ready to encourage you on your daily journey. I can't wait to get started. And now let's listen to today's show. This podcast is a production of the Ultimate Homeschool Radio Network. What is creation? Did God create the world in six days and rest on the seventh? Does anyone really care? These questions and many more, including teaching tips and great resources, are presented in the Creation Science Podcast. My name is Felice Gerwitz, and it's my pleasure and honor to be your host. Some of these shows are from my Best of Creation Expos and other presentations I've completed throughout the years of teaching on this topic. I'm the owner of Media Angels, Inc., a publishing company that produces books, audios, and videos to help you and your family in your Christian walk. Check out my books and other podcasts at MediaAngels.com. To get the show notes for this broadcast, go to CreationSciencePodcast.com. And now, let's learn together. Hi, and welcome. My name is Felice Gerwitz, and I am the host of the Creation Expo. I cannot tell you how this is a dream come true for me, having studied creation and the effects it has, um, the evolution has had on faith and morals and so many other things. And so today it is with great delight that I introduce my next guest, and that is Dr. Sharp. Welcome, Dr. Sharp. I'm glad to be here, Felice. Well, you run a ministry uh, called Creation uh, Truth, and it's creationtruth.com. And tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got started in this. Well, I have been in ministry. This is my 52nd year of preaching the gospel. So I tell people I started at night, but not last night. And I pastored a church uh, in Alabama back in the early part from 65 to 80 and became very familiar with the reality that we were losing our young people out of our congregation to secular thinking by the time they reached 15, um, about 60% of them. And it was very troubling to me. So when I moved on from that responsibility um, and began studying this issue to try to understand what it is in the culture that so deeply influences what our own children are thinking uh, and what is causing them to form secular worldviews rather than biblical worldviews, even those kids who are children of the saints, the Most High God, I recognized that there was a leaven desperate and despicable in the culture that was having more influence and mind-controlling realities on our young people's development 
and formation of attitudes and important behavioral processes than the word of the Lord. And parents were not aware of it, and pastors are not aware of it, and so our kids are being trained under our nose to think uh, thoughts and to pursue ideas that are not biblical and are not in keeping with the will of God, and it's a part, uh, in my estimation, of the deception of these days. Uh, so it led me to study for about eight or nine years in the 80s and the development of Creation Truth Foundation, which I am now the president of, and we deal with uh, the key issues that are the most harmful to biblical worldview development in young people so that particularly homeschool parents, uh, Christian school parents too, but particularly homeschool parents can home in on this and safeguard the formation of their children's thoughts and development while they're trying to disciple them in their home. And so this particular topic I'm going to be dealing with today is one of the most important of the problems facing why many people think there's, uh, thinks there's something wrong with uh, uh, biblical creation. So we will be talking about that in greater detail here in just a few minutes. Right. And see, that's the thing that you and I, um, I, I as I've told you before, it seems like we've lived in uh, parallel universes because I was finding that with the kids that I was teaching in church when they were questioning me and saying, well, how do you know the Bible's true and how do you know that um, yeah. you know that, that this is historic and, you know, and, and all of this other stuff, and I finally, after years of, you know, giving them, because we, we think we need to find the evidence, so I was combating it with the scriptures and showing them, you know, this, this, and this, and look at how Genesis, you know, ties into the Gospels and then ties into Revelation, and look at, you know, and, and, and I would go back and forth and draw these arrows on the marker board, and I was so, you know, excited about what I was teaching them and showing how all these things, you know, look at how many times Jesus mentioned Genesis. And yes. why would he do that if it was just an allegory or, you know, a fable or a story and, and back and forth, back and forth. And then yes. one year, it was almost like the Holy Spirit whispered in my ear and said, ask why. So I looked at this, you know, these two boys, they had double teamed me, you know, and and uh cute kids and really enthusiastic about life and um and so you know i said why do you have these questions and doubts you know and they said looked at each other and looked at me and said well haven't you heard about evolution <laughs> and i almost i almost jumped out of my chair and i wanted to say do you know what i've written for the last you know at that time it was like 5 or 6 years and I just smiled and I said, actually, I have. You know, what are your questions? And one by one, I was able to answer their questions. And they wanted to know why their parents couldn't answer them and why their teachers weren't answering them. And they, well, their teachers were answering them, but not quite the way I would be. And so, um, you know, it was amazing that I could use that tool and we're going to empower parents today, Dr. Sharp, with this uh, this uh, demonstration and um, presentation that you're going to do. And we want to let people know, listening uh, to this, um, maybe on a on a mobile device, that there are extensive handouts in 
the membership site, and also, Dr. Sharp, you have a complete video on this topic on your website. Yes, we do. Yeah, they can right. they can go to our website and click on the video library and watch this free. Wonderful. And if I don't get finished, then they can go finish. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, you are going to add a little twist here with some ways that homeschool moms can actually uh, teach this to their children. So sure. I am going to sit back and uh, be blessed by your presentation, and I will be back at the end, and we'll, um, we'll handle some questions. Okie dokie. Well, my topic today is called Missing Links, uh, Common Ancestors and Other Evolutionary Assumptions. So essentially, the presentation is about the Bible and biology. Um, I tell congregations and audiences all over the United States, around the world where I speak, that if we cannot believe what the Bible says about biology, about geology, about astronomy, about anthropology, about paleontology, and so forth, then how in the world can we believe what he says about prophecy? And so, you know, the Lord made it very clear. And so we want to talk about this aspect because these are called Darwinisms or these are called icons of evolution. And when we discuss icons of evolution, uh, there is an incredible book written by Jonathan Wells, who's a member of the Discovery Institute, the, the guys in Seattle that have developed uh, and pursue the intelligent design model. Um, I've got things to say about that, but not now. Uh, but in his book, he identifies that the primary icons of evolution are the Miller-Urey experiment, and everybody has seen this vacuum tube in which there are electrodes, and uh, Stanley Miller, who won the Nobel Prize for this, uh, for really no apparent reason, but they got to give it to somebody. And so uh, he put some uh, methane, ammonia, water vapor, and hydrogen in there, which he just assumed were the original uh, compounds in the primordial atmosphere, and he just simply borrowed that from A.I. Oparin, the organic chemist in Russia, who was atheistic in his worldview, and he assumed that to be the case as well. Now we know that's not even possible, but he did this, and so his experiment back in the 50s, in which he literally trapped out some amino acids, acids, which are the building blocks of life, this was sold to the world as if Miller and Urey have invented the building blocks of life, so if Miller and Urey did it, we don't need God. That was the idea. So that becomes a very important icon in the modern uh, indoctrination of evolution. Then there's Dar Darwin's tree of life, or, or family trees, or phylogenetic trees, they're called. Uh, then there's homology, invertebrate limbs, the, the notion that we have homologous structures, uh, horses, uh, bats, uh, the flipper of a dolphin, and the human arm, for example, are compared in textbooks, and these homologous structures are explained uh, to be the result of common ancestry. The problem with this is there have been no common ancestors verified with which an airtight case can be made, and so if the homologous structures are evidence of human ancestry, but there are no known common ancestors between uh, major groups of living organisms, then, of course, this is moot. 
but that becomes uh, an important uh, icon of evolution. Uh, Ernst Haeckel's embryological recapitulation theory or model, the, the idea that in gestation in our mother's womb, uh, the human embryo goes through all the stages of his evolutionary history from a one-celled organism to a human, and of course that's been uh, embryologically disproven for a hundred years. The tragedy is this is still in seven out of ten of the 2010 biology textbooks used in public schools and state universities at the undergraduate level, even freshmen, sophomores, zoology, and so forth. This is still being used as an evidence of evolution, even though it has been disproved incredibly well. Uh, the notion of Archaeopteryx being a reptilian-style bird, so you have a reptile turning into a bird. Even um, um, the professor from Harvard, I've, I've lost his name, it'll come to me in a minute. Nonetheless, he passed away in 2002. Uh, he said, uh, Stephen, uh, Stephen, 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 I get it in a minute, that's his first name. Uh, he said... Uh, you know, we can't use curious mosaics, genetic mosaics like Archaeopteryx as evidence of uh, uh, human evolution or transition. And so the Archaeopteryx has been dropped as being anything significant. In fact, as I go through this list, I want you to understand that none of these icons of evolution uh, are now believed by the serious scientists. They've all been dropped. None of them... Uh, are believed to be scientifically valid, yet seven out of ten of them appear in all textbooks, uh, copyright 2010. Uh, peppered moths, uh, the, the light and dark variety of the Bestin bichelaria, the, the, the peppered moth, um, that's no longer believed to be um, an example of genuine transition. Uh, Darwin's finches that, uh, you know, has been utilized um, as evidence of uh, Darwinian change. Um, really, Darwin wasn't excited about the finches. That's been manipulated since his death, and Peter Grant brings that point very vivid to us. But nonetheless, we understand that these uh, finches are finches. Someone said, well, who do you suppose, or what was the common ancestor to all these varieties of finches? The point is, in biblical creation, the Bible establishes the fact that God created uh, fixed kinds, genetically controlled those kinds. Now, there's a vast difference between a created kind, uh, and of course there's a whole study uh, of the created kind. The Hebrew is bara men, and so there is now a study called bara menology, the study of created kinds. Uh, there is great latitude within the created kinds that deal with these issues of um, that deal with these issues of uh, diversion and transition, and allow for variety within a kind, but not transition between kinds. And so, when we talk about these kinds of things, we we, we must understand that the Bible explains variety. Today, depending upon whether the biologist is a splitter or a clumper, these are very common words, but this is what the taxonomists, the people who classify things, call them. So you've got species. Um, these species are considered to be 
gen- genetically unique, but really within a created kind, uh, speciation is just a variety within the kind. And now we're understanding that there's a vast array of uh, variety that is possible within the created kind, and we're learning more about that. But uh, Darwin's finches is an example of that, and if you've got a bunch of finches, I remember uh, by illustration of this idea, I was debating a physical chemist over in Tulsa one time, and he said to me, you know, out in the Uliga limestone, which is in the Pennsylvania layers uh, in northwest uh, Tulsa County, he said there's a very unique... Uh, group of clam fossils that we find there and he said so if you believe that clams are the result of spatial creation why do we not find this particular kind of clam any other place in the world except in this particular formation I said well if you're asking me about where these clams came from and you do believe that they're clams I suggest to you that they came from mommy and daddy clam now the fact that they have a unique design on their shell just means that they were isolated by geophysical distribution in some way and they then were able genetically to develop a unique pattern on their shell just simply because of isolation. But if they're clams, they're clams. And so when we talk about their origin, that's not a problem. And so the finches is the same kind of thing. All these finches, there were little tweezer-billed finches and big um, heavy-billed finches and running feet and perching feet and so forth. Well, all of these finches were varieties of finches, so the common ancestor to the finches is obviously a finch, and that's the idea. And, of course, uh, the mutations uh, in fruit flies, the Drosophila melanogaster, the fruit flies, uh, that's become an icon. And so the fact that we've zapped these little red-eyed fruit flies, or we call them gnats, if you put out a bowl of peaches in the springtime or summertime, you don't realize that the eggs for those little flies are on the skin of those peaches. And in a matter of a of a day or so, you'll have a horde of these little red-eyed, we call them gnats, flying around your peaches. Well, we we used to do experiments when I was a bio, bio, biological instructor. Um, we used to buy these from the laboratory and we they're wonderful because you can have a whole brand new uh batch of these guys in 11 days about and so we would create medium and we would uh, put one male and one female in the medium and in 11 days there'd be 500 fruit flies in here and so then we would mix up various kinds of mutants the thing i discovered in years of biological uh, testing that within five to six generations uh, regardless of how they had been zapped by uh, mutagens, uh, x-rays, various kinds of solutions to to knock out their eyes, to turn their eyes brown or sepia, or to make the hairs on their body like pencil lead, or to multiply their wings, or whatever you did to them to mutate them, uh, within four to six generations, when you mix them back with a wild type, uh, the offspring would continually, generation after generation, produce a greater percentage of the wild variety that God created in the beginning until eventually um, using mutants in uh, one-on-one in reproduction, you gradually totally genetically filtered out the complete expression of mutants uh, or mutations. 
that's incredible. We never did turn them in in the thousands and thousands of mutations and uh, the thousands and thousands of manipulations. We never did turn them into butterflies or bumblebees or eagles or anything else. They they always would return to the wild type. That's the uniqueness of the genetic control in the created kinds. And the Bible says they'll bring forth after their kind. Um I'm a little ahead of myself, but I can already tell you I'm not going to get finished. Let me, I was at the Smithsonian a few years ago doing some research, and, and the curator of the paleobiologic division, Raymond Rye, was my host, and uh, I stayed there 10 days, and they were very kind to me. He was, a, he was a doctrinaire evolutionist, and he believed what he believed, and he knew I was a creationist, and so we kind of looked at one another when we first met like a couple banny roosters, but uh, we had some very serious and uh, uh, heart-to-heart talks. But he was kind. He let me into the National Museum of Natural History just a block or two from the White House, and he let me look at the, the specimens and the exhibits. And I came to one exhibit one day, and... Uh, down in this presentation somewhere, you'll find it, and I'll get there in a minute, but it's natural in the progression of how this line of thinking is being developed, so I'm going to use it now. There was a cricket, and I asked, I said, Raymond, how how old is this fossil cricket? It looked very much like a modern cricket. That's I was very astounded. He said, well, we think, based upon our testing understanding, that this cricket is about 35 million years old, could be older, uh, since then, I've found that they've discovered fossil crickets that, that they uh, claim or assert are older than that. Well, when I asked Raymond, I said, well, isn't it unique to you that it's very much like modern crickets? I said, is this the oldest known fossil cricket that you've ever found? He said, yes, this is about the oldest that we know about. And then I asked him, I said, isn't it interesting that crickets have always been crickets? And he looked at me, and the corner of his mouth turned up, and he knew what I was uh, hammering at, what I was pointing to. The reality is, that's exactly what a Bible believer would expect when he looks at the evidence. You would expect to see as far back as is permissible. Now, I don't believe in the 35 million year date for this thing. I believe that it was the result, probably, of the flood of Noah about 4,300 years ago, when I think the vast majority of the rocks and fossils were laid down. But nonetheless, that's another discussion. The point is simply this. When we find these things, I think it should be significant to moms and dads teaching their kids that what we find today are the kinds of things that we see alive today. In fact, over 80% of the fossil record, now there's been some extinction caused by the flood, but over 80% of the fossil record all the way down to the Cambrian, even into the Precambrian where we find microscopic bacteria. But all the fossils we find, over 80% of them are in the same genus at least, for sure the same phyla of the kinds of things that are alive today, which means that there's something to this created kind, that there hasn't been all of this evolutionary transition that we've been told in the evolutionary classroom. Well, that's why these fruit flies and are zapping them with mutants and, mutants and all of the kinds of 
inimical or harmful influences to bring out expressions that normally doesn't happen is important. Then the fossil horse thing, and of course that was a, an off Nile marsh development in Yale, and um, it was not based on anything significant. He found some different kind of hooved animals. He alleged that this was the evolution of the horse. He designed his horse series back at the beginning of the last century, and it is still used as evidence of directed evolution, and it's one of the icons of evolution, but it has now lost its emphasis. Of course, the ape-to-human uh, icon, that transition we see, um, you know, is a uh, one of the icons, and then the, the science um, or myth of the biological record is a part of that scheme. So let me get on with this reality. Um, what I want you to understand as a listener, Jesus said, if I've told you earthly things, if I've told you about the earth, if I've told you I created the earth in six days, um, either Jesus is a jokester or a fraud or he's the eternal mighty creator of the universe and he owns it and he knows what he's talking about. So if I've told you earthly things, if I've told you there was a worldwide flood just a few thousand years ago, and you don't believe that, you don't believe that evidence, then how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? This is the ultimate conclusion of this matter. This is the this is the problematic uh, bifurcation or division in where one of these ideas will lead you to. Um, if if Jesus is right, Darwin is wrong. If Darwin is right, Jesus is wrong. The problem is neither creation nor evolution, or the truth, I should say, is not a problem. The truth is that neither creation nor evolution is scientific. Jesus also said that, um, do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, in whom you trust. For if you believe Moses, you would believe me. For he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, beginning in Genesis. Now, the internal uh, proof of the authorship of four of the books of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, beginning with Exodus through Deuteronomy, the internal evidences there are just vouch faith. There's no question uh, at all that Moses wrote Numbers, Leviticus, uh, Exodus, and Deuteronomy. There's no there's no question. But the question is, did he write Genesis? Well, I believe that Gen uh, that Moses wrote Genesis because Jesus believed Moses wrote Genesis, and I think it puts me in pretty good company. And you could just look at Luke twenty four twenty seven, you'll see that evidence pretty forthright. And so Jesus himself is saying in the Gospel of John, if you can't believe Moses, you can't believe me. The last line here. But if you do not believe his writings, beginning in Genesis, how will you believe my words? Now, the devil knows this. He knows that if he can attack Genesis in our thinking and destroy or discredit it in any way, and, of course, Darwinism, as I shall say on on Monday, is probably the most harmful of all philosophies to ever attack the human heart because it carries the most heinous deception by taking a mythological notion that life could come into existence from non-life 
and by attaching that to scientific credibility and garnering to it the same credit that genetics or gravity or any of these other testable, observable, repeatable sciences have and putting it in the same ballpark, then evolution takes on a most heinous, deceptive nature. And this is the thing that I think we've got to understand. So that when we train our children to develop biblical worldview, we've got to develop their worldview based upon the foundational chapters of the Bible and everything in the Bible, all doctrines, all teaching, everything that we believe, every, all, all faith, for the faith was once and for all delivered unto the saints. All of these primary understandings are founded on 12 chapters of the Bible. Uh, they're intimately related so that you have to understand the doctrines at their origin. So you can preach and teach New Testament doctrine incredibly sound by understanding the origin for those doctrines in Genesis 1 through 12. And so when we build biblical worldview, we have to build our worldview on the knowledge presented in Genesis. This is why I call this science according to Moses. Now, I have a uh, an out-of-print series of books that I wrote years ago, and it went through four printings called Science According to Moses. And I was on the Marlin Maddox program several years ago, and uh, Marlin was, of course, alive then, and we were going out over the U.S. radio network, and, and a fellow called in from Nebraska, and he says, um, Dr. Sharp, I'd like to have a set of those books, and da 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 and we answered his questions and so forth. And a few weeks later, I got this little tacky card in the mail, and he said, Dr. Sharp, I'm amazed. I, you know, and I said, well, why is this man amazed? And he wrote, well, I, I am, I'm astonished that you think Moses was a scientist. Well, it didn't dawn on me um, that the general public didn't understand the word science. You know, it taught me something. When I talk to people now, I become aware of the fact that the vast majority of people sitting in the audience listening to me talk, when I say science, they're thinking biology. They're thinking physics. They're thinking test tubes. They're thinking leaf collections. They're thinking rock collections. They're thinking chemicals. They're thinking microscopes and telescopes. That's what we think of when we think science. But the word science comes from its Latin origin, and it means knowledge. And when I wrote this series of books called Science According to Moses, I was really saying or trying to say that we must build our worldview on the knowledge developed in the writings of Moses, particularly the book of Genesis. Then I saw the terrible, beguiling deception of the evolutionary intrusion into biblical sanity because even when we think of science, we think of it in terms of an Aristotelian or Greek source rather than its biblical Hebrew source, and we automatically think that um, we're talking about something that can be tested and repeated. Well, when we talk about these issues, we must realize that both evolution and creation are belief systems. 
I never shall forget being in Birmingham, Alabama a few years ago, and the Phyllis Shafley organization had fought a legal battle at the Alabama Supreme Court to influence the textbooks in the public school, and their lead attorney was there, and they were celebrating that they got a favorable decision by the judge, the panel of judges. And so I was in town at the time, and they invited me to go to this uh, celebration breakfast, and so I'm sitting there by the lead attorney, and so as they're going through all this uh, ceremony and stuff, I uh, pick up a conversation with the attorney, and I said, could you tell me a little bit about the case? And she says, yes, that we um, we were able to get the judges to, to order the publishing companies to change the word fact, rather than saying the fact of evolution, uh, we got them to change it to the theory of evolution. And I said, um, oh, well, I got sick at my stomach. Now, do I sit here on this reality, or do I share this with this attorney? I said, um, do you understand, uh, and I called her by name, I said, do you understand that you really didn't accomplish a lot? She said, well, yeah, we accomplished a vast amount. I said, no, the scientists who were engaging this law case against the Bible and the creation people knew that in a scientific context, the word theory, by definition in the textbook, means that a scientific theory has at least minimally been proven by scientific research to be true. Even in the scientific method, the hypothesis level, now while it hasn't yet been tested, the scientist that develops what he calls a scientific hypothesis has in his structure the process of investigation he's going to pursue so he does at least have a an idea as to how he's going to test his his hypothesis. So when we talk about creation and evolution, we cannot allow the enemy of the Bible to say that evolution is a theory, not in a scientific context, because a scientific theory has minimal scientific research behind it. There is no research behind evolution, and there is no research behind creation. So you say, well, you sound like you're getting excited. Yes, I am getting excited, because this is the bottom line of deception. The idea that evolution has some scientific credibility and creation is just a religion is the whole crux of the battle. That's the deceptive element in the conflict. Evolution is not scientific. It has never been scientific. It's just a tortured model of the secularist in their denial of the creator God and their accountability to him. Creation is not scientific in any way. The evidence we use is the same evidence. We both look at the same fossils. We both look at the same slides. We both look through the same telescopes at the same stars. We all look at the same evidence. We give completely different interpretations of the evidence. But the debate is not about the evidence. The debate is about, is, is about why our worldview will permit us to give mutually exclusive interpretations of the same evidence. And so this is what we're talking about when we talk about the debate. Well, let me illustrate this just a little bit. A few years ago, I was on television in Oklahoma City and... 
there was a professor there from the University of Oklahoma and a professor there from Oklahoma State University from the philosophy department. He's the head of the philosophy department. And the guy from OU or Oklahoma University was a biologist. And there was a theologian there from Oklahoma City University. So they were all evolutionists. And the moderator of the debate or the panel was a, was a skeptic, so he was not friendly to me. And they invited me in because they needed the creationist because they wanted to gang up on him, you know, and they wanted to show how ignorant and unlearned I was. And so um, the the guy from OU starts off the debate. They got the cameras rolling. We're going out live over the PBS station in our area. And so he says, well, all the evidence is in favor of evolution. I say to him, no. I called him by name. I'll protect his name in this program, but I said, no, the evidence is in favor of evolution. You can just say that. You're just saying that. You, what evidence are you talking about? Well, he said, we've got evidence from biochemistry. We've got evidence from the genetic code. We've got evidence from comparative anatomy, from the fossil record. And, of course, the guy from OSU, the philosopher, said, yeah, that's true. That's true. I said, wait a minute, guys. You're just saying that. Give me some evidence. Well, he hadn't been forced like that or confronted to that degree, I guess. I don't know. But at any rate, he said, well, I think the evidence uh, from from um, biochemistry today is pretty conclusive. He said, uh, we now know that that the biochemistry of chimpanzees and human beings is about 99% similar. Of course, since that time, the research has shown that it's more like 80 82%. But the point is, he said... Uh, he, he did give me some evidence, and I said, so what do you think that evidence means? I'm familiar with the evidence. I've read the same journals you've read, and I understand that that's what they're telling us. This is the evidence, that the biochemistry is similar. So what does that evidence mean to you? Well, he says, that evidence means to me that chimpanzees are our nearest relative in the animal kingdom. I said, I disagree. I believe that evidence means that the creator God was of such significance had such intelligence and such power that he could make common phenotypic expression, common characteristics. In other words, creatures with the same appearance physically. He could make them uh, look alike, and he could make them biochemistry to be similar, which we would expect it to be if we looked alike. But he made us vastly unique so that we were in a created kind and we would not bring forth uh, any kind of mixture between those kinds, so that while chimpanzees and humans are biochemically similar, it is important to know that bananas and humans are biochemically similar. But we know that we're not first cousins or third cousins or distant cousins to bananas. Neither are we relatives of the chimpanzees we just were created by the same God. Well, that subject changed immediately. So what I'm telling you today is that in this biological debate over common ancestors, missing links, and other assumptions, we've got to recognize that because the secular crowd has taken over the culture in the last hundred years and dominate the university context and the educational philosophy of the United States rather than the Bible believer. We've lost our Judeo-Christian mindset since the 1960s, in fact, that they're presenting their interpretation of the evidence 
as if it is the evidence. This is the problem. If you can grasp this as a parent, then you have a leg up on the proper instruction of your children. Well, a lot can be said there. Uh, so when we talk about these issues, we in worldview development must allow God to be true and every man a liar. So when I discuss the predictions made from each model, so let me describe this slide just a little bit to you. I'm looking at the four predictions from the creation model versus the four predictions from the evolution model. And if I were to debate this, this is how I would approach a debate. It doesn't take rocket science. It's not about science anyway. You need to know a little bit about the scientific arguments to be familiar with the terminology, but this debate is not about science. It's about worldview development. So there are predictions made from each model. So creation evolution is at best a model. It's not a theory, not in the scientific context. It's not even a hypothesis. It is a model. It is a philosophical construct with which a particular worldview manages the evidence. So the evidence from the creation model is that life only comes from life. The evidence from the evolutionary model is that evidence is from non-life. Well, ladies and gentlemen, Louis Pasteur, back in the 19th century, verified this prediction from the creationist point of view because he proved conclusively, and no one disputes what Louis Pasteur did, he proved that life can only come from life. And the spontaneous generation notion that was held by many scientists until that time was completely smashed and disproved that life doesn't come from non-life, life comes from life. So the weakest position in the evolutionary argument is that they believe of course, Stanley uh, Miller thought he established that, and Kenneth Miller, uh, a modern extant biologist who is a very popular author of a biological textbook, he said that based upon what Louis Pasteur did, we know that the circumstances in the Earth's environment doesn't permit, because of the influence of oxygen, it doesn't permit for uh, the spontaneous generation of life from non-life to happen anymore. But he said 3.5 billion years ago, this is the kind of thing that was possible. Ladies and gentlemen, upon what meat hath Caesar eaten? That he can stand and look at you in a scientific context and think that you believe he knows what happens 3.5 billion years ago. That's not scientific. You see, science doesn't do well with the unobserved past. And so to say that while we know this can't happen today in a legitimate laboratory setting, it did happen 3.5 billion years ago. That's begging the question. And that just simply is the weakness of the position the significant weakness of the evolutionary position is their belief on the origin of life. They believe that life had to initiate at least once from non-life. And there's no scientific evidence for that, not at all. We have scientific evidence that life can only arise from life. So at least circumstantially, 
the creation model has been justified in the scientific context. The second of the predictions is that kinds, created kinds, holistically controlled by genetics. So that we know that within a created kind, you can have variety within that kind, but there isn't any possibility to have transition between kinds. So we see what we call microevolution, and microevolution is just change within a kind, little bits of, of uh, genetic expression due to external pressure. The point is, there has never been any evidence to this very minute, 2012. There's never been any evidence that any circumstance in nature, any environmental pressure, any kind of context externally can force into the genome of an organism any new information that will impact transition within it. In other words, to have a microevolutionary expression or what is commonly called an adaptation or a variety within a kind. Different colored feathers, different kinds of spots or coloration of the thoracic cavity of a beetle or whatever. These little minor transitions. If that's possible, and it is, it requires that the genetic the genetic knowledge or information for that must be present in the genome from the beginning. It's not added in from the outside. That's another weakness of the evolutionary position because to have the modification simple to complex over time, to have this kind of transition so that adaptation is the result of evolution in action so that over time you can actually get from a worm to an eagle, if that's the truth, then they are really in trouble because they can't find any justification to verify the intrusion or the ad addition of uh, genetics into a genome from the outside. So when we say kinds are holistically controlled by genetics, um, you would expect clams to always be clams and trilobites to always be trilobites and snails to always be snails. You would never expect to see uh, snams and cleos and clamabites, and that's what we do not see. We do not see those intermediary forms. What we do see is exactly what we would expect to see on the basis of biblical creation. So the evolutionary prediction is that species transition upward to new species. Well, that transition, um, we don't see all of that uh, in the fossil record or in any other kind of record. We see clear, distinct kinds. We don't see any connection or missing link between any major group. What we see in the fossil record, and it's repeated in the literature, there are gaps. We see these gaps. Well, the Bible predicts those gaps. Okay, there's there's uh, fish, and there's amphibians, and there's reptiles, okay, and there's birds, and there's mammals, and there's men. And there's gaps between them, and we don't see any transition between those major gaps. And that's the problem. Uh, the third prediction is the prediction from geology, and I'm going to overlook that for right now because that uh, I'll deal with that tomorrow. Um, then the fourth prediction is the human race was created in God's image. And this is very important for you to understand when I say the human race because 
were constantly exposed to races, the idea of races. Darwin was a racist. He was related to Francis Galton. That was his first cousin. And his own son was involved in the eugenics movement uh, back in the 19th century or the part of the 20th century. And they believed that there were races of people and the races were separated by evolutionary time and that some races were inferior to others because of evolutionary transition. And so... Uh, you know, the subtitle of Darwin's Origin of Species was the preservation of the favored races in the struggle for life. The preservation of the favored races in the struggle for life. That's really what his book was about. And so he personally believed that the white European race of humans was the most superior and most fit for survival. And, of course, that was picked up by the Germanic Teutonic uh, tyrant by the name of Adolf Hitler, and that was the biological motive for World War II, if you want to know the truth of the matter. So uh, the notion that there are races of humans is not a biblical concept. The Bible only talks about the human race. And so there are ethnicities, and there are different phenotypic characteristics that are directly controlled by genetics, and this is due to isolation, but there is uh, interhuman viability. In other words, you can take black people and white people and yellow people and red people, and genetically they mix and are reproductively viable. And so this takes us back to the power of Babel and the dispersion of the languages and and then the isolation of the genetic code for its coding for phenotypic expression or characteristics of the of how we look and as long as you kept um, these these specific isolations distributed and they maintained their isolation and didn't mix then the consistency of the expression remained and so what we see in black people and yellow people and white people and red people is not a different race we see a different expression of the human gene pool. And then, of course, over time, since the Tower of Babel, this expression has then been influenced by culturation due to locality and norms and values and mores within that locality and that culturation. And this is where the difference is. But please, from a biblical point of view, please do not understand or do not believe that there are races of human beings in a biological sense. But this is an evolutionary position. You'll notice the prediction, uh, the, bio, the, the evolutionist says, man consists of several races and is a derivative of animal ancestry. Now, that's their assumption. That's never been proven, but that's their assumption. Well, uh, I'm um, wanting you to note that... Um, G. Richard Bozarth, a, an atheist, wrote a long time ago in the atheist journal called The American Atheist in a title he called The Meaning of Evolution. He said, Christian has fought, still fights, and will fight science to the desperate end over evolution. Now, their use of the word science, you need to understand he's, he's meaning naturalism. He's not meaning a observable, repeatable, falsifiable science. They use the word science like a morsel rolling it around on their tongue 
as a part of the deception. They're not talking about anything demonstrable in the laboratory. They'd like for us to think that. But they utilize this, and this is how they've hijacked legitimate science. But he goes on and says, over evolution. That's what he's really talking about. Because evolution destroys utterly and finally the very reason Jesus' earthly life was supposedly made necessary. Destroy Adam and Eve and the original sin, and in the rubble you'll find the sorry remains of the Son of God. Now get this. If Jesus was not the Redeemer who died for our sins, and this is what evolution means, in your notes you need to underline that clause, and this is what evolution means, then, Jesus, then Christianity is nothing. If Jesus was not the Redeemer who died for our sins, and this is what evolution means, then Christianity is nothing. You can turn in Darwin's Origin of Species to the next to the last paragraph of the book and notice that he says the most incredible uh, development is possible through death and famine in other words, he's saying the most unimaginable consequences through death and famine are possible in the transition of developmental mechanisms producing varieties within the created world or within the observable world. What he's telling us is the evolutionary position on death is that death is a mechanism of development. The biblical view of death is that death is the curse of Adam's sin. These are mutually exclusive, and here is the crux of the battle. Either death is because Adam sinned and is the reason for Jesus coming in the flesh to die for our sins, either that's true, or death is a developmental mechanism in evolutionary processes, and Adam and Eve are mythologies. That's where we are in this development or this debate. And so we have to understand that. That's what I'm appealing to parents about. Uh, train your children to think like Jesus thought so that they can be full of the Spirit, full of the Word of God, and impact their generation for the glory of God. That's the only way they can. Right. We, as parents, must give our children the tools that they need to have that personal and deep commitment with the Lord and not have these barriers and these questions that are not able to be answered. And um, I just thank you, Dr. Sharp, for coming on and your passion for what you do. Well, God bless you, and thanks a bunch for the opportunity, Please Hope to talk to you some more. All righty. Thank you. Yes, ma'am. Thanks so much for listening to the Creation Science Podcast. You can find the show notes at creationsciencepodcast.com. And as always, reach out to me, Felice Gerwitz, at felice at mediaangels.com. Take care, God bless, and I hope you enjoy teaching your children and learning about the beautiful world that God created. Please share this broadcast with a friend, and thanks so much. podcast is a production of the ultimate homeschool radio network subscribe to this podcast on itunes google play or any of your favorite podcast apps 
Look for the Ultimate Homeschool Radio Show to keep up to date with all our wonderful podcasts. For a special subscriber printable pack, as well as all our timely freebies, join our email list on theultimatehomeschoolradionetwork.com.